Welcome to the House of Jordans podcast. This is episode 17 that we bring to you. I want to give a shout out to Michael Jordan. He turned if I, 57, 57 yesterday. Yep. Um, so shout out to Michael Jordan. Basketball goat, hobby goat. Just the goat in general, you know. Overall goat. Yeah, so I'm Brian. You can find me on Instagram at Joden Cards. I'm Christina. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Christina's PC. Yeah, but she doesn't go on Twitter, so don't even waste your time reaching out on that medium. Oh, shots <laughs> fired. I send, look, I find little funny memes on Twitter. Like NBA Twitter has a lot of good stuff. Mm-hmm. And I send you them for the last two weeks. You haven't seen a single one. You have okay, one tweet, so and your one tweet is talking about how you think Dirk Nowitzki is going to become the coach of the Dallas Mavericks. Well, that's a hot tweet. But, yeah. I mean, so the the problem is I need to reset my password so I can put See, it on my phone. Okay. I have now it on the my computer. Excuses start coming. So I will do that after the show. Yeah, so you can follow her on Twitter, but I will get have Twitter on my phone after this show. And uh, my name's Chris. You can find me on Instagram at Chris underscore HOJ. You can find me on Twitter at House of Jordans. So we have three topics for you today in this special 23 minute edition. The first topic is. A recap of the NBA All-Star Game. We're going to talk about an important selling tip on eBay that you don't want to miss. And then finally, we're going to briefly reflect on an article that was written about uh, flipping in the art community. Before we move forward, let me just give a shout out to a new podcast that was released that featured Chris. And that is For the Hobby. Yeah. Go check that out. Please do go check it out. out. Um, Really a great discussion. Gotten a lot of great feedback from it already in the first like 12 hours of its release. So follow them on Instagram and stay in tune with that movement. All right. First topic is a recap of the NBA All-Star game. There's a lot of things that are potentially relevant to the hobby in uh, a way that might not have been predictable if you were just looking at the way that previous all-star games panned out but this all-star game panned out in a very unique way which was the elam ending and without boring to death the audience basically the elam ending resulted in a target score so instead of teams playing until a clock expired they had to play until one team got to 157 which created this kind of playground pickup basketball aspect where the teams were just dueling back and forth you know trying to just inch their way to that final point so the elam ending worked effectively uh it created a very competitive atmosphere and that's going to be really important to what we say in just a minute here but first um let's just recap some of the outcomes of the game so the mvp award went to Kawhi, and here's my first take on that it should have gone to chris paul Kawhi had 30 points and seven rebounds but his plus minus he was a minus five in 20 minutes Chris Paul uh, got 23 points and six assists. He played 23 minutes. He was a plus 13. 23 and, points in 23 minutes. Well, that alone should have got him the MVP, Exactly. I guess. <laughs> he got his statistics when it really mattered. A lot of Kawhi's three-pointers and stuff were these wide-open looks in the first half when nobody was really trying. Chris Paul racked up his statistics when the game intensity picked up. So... Then there were some observations I made about the playoffs. Uh, number one, down the stretch, I'm not sure if this is a function of the fact that Nick Nurse was the coach or 
what the team dynamic was, but Giannis was constantly deferring offensively to Embiid and Siakam. And those guys kind of went into ISO ball and just, it was a post-up to Siakam, then it was a post-up to Embiid, and then there was a foul, or maybe there wasn't a foul. It became very difficult to score, and the offense just collapsed. I think partially that's a function of the fact that these guys don't really play together that offense they don't really know where everybody is on the floor it's more difficult but it's really not that difficult to run some pick and roll schemes and rotate to an open spot if you're off the ball I found it interesting that Harden passed up the game-winning layup you know he had the game-winning layup and he kicked it to Chris Paul for a a contested uh, look from the corner Ben Simmons and Rudy Gobert played very well Rudy Gobert had 21 points on 10 of 11 from the field he had 11 rebounds he was a plus nine in 19 minutes Ben Simmons had 17 points on 8-9 shooting, 6 rebounds, 5 assists. He was a plus 7 in 29 minutes. LeBron uh, was dominant throughout the whole game, no doubt about it, and he turned up the defensive energy when he needed to, especially in response to Giannis turning it up. But he also got tired down the stretch, and that's like my one concern with him this season is fatigue. And that's just a function of age that even sort of the ageless LeBron might in fact have to deal with down the stretch here. And it sort of manifested itself in this hilarious like half-court shot that he jacked up to try and end the game when you know that was just not a high-value high shot to take at all. Uh, but on the other hand, LeBron and AD ultimately connected to win the game with the game-winning play. They looked pretty good, uh, especially in a very intense clutch situation. LeBron was able to find AD on a mismatch, get him the winning free throws. Here's a box score observation that's unexpected. Brandon Ingram had the best plus minus plus 10 of anybody on team Giannis. And he was the second best in the entire game only to Chris Paul. But Ingram played the fewest minutes of anyone. He only played nine minutes. So we get to the issue of why were Luca and Trey on the bench. First, why no Luca? One of the reasons has to be that LeBron and Chris Paul are good friends. And Chris Paul was kind of the sixth man. And, you know, from the perspective of seniority, you're going to knock Luca off before you knock off Harden or, right. you know, those Luca, Harden and Chris Paul are all kind of competing I mean, for yeah, the guard seniority position. there. Like you're not going to just get like a rookie to come up there. And especially it's the fourth sophomore. quarter. Yeah. I mean, rookie, sophomore, but All-star this is his rookie. first time. Yeah. All-star rookie. Also, Chris Paul played very well. Um, like I said, I thought he should have won the MVP, but then, okay, that's fine. But maybe Harden should have come out. Uh, he was not really getting it going in the fourth quarter at all. Yeah, you know that that would have been a great sub, I think, for Luca. Uh, then why no Trey Young? Uh, seniority has to be a part of that discussion, but also I think there was like a big coaching bias there. You got to put yourself in the perspective of Nick Nurse, who's the coach of the Toronto Raptors, who also coached Team Giannis. I mean. Yeah, isn't any surprise that Kyle Lowry and Pascal Siakam, the two guys who were on the Raptors, also happened to be on the floor when it mattered the most? Like, what? Well, of course not. What's the coach going to do? Right. He's going to sub out his guys for no. a, a different rookie, all-star rookie, sophomore. Well, plus, NBA you're going to go with like the cha- the reigning champions from last year. There you go. Who you know at a crunch time can pull through versus an like a untested all-star rookie. Yeah, and you know, then you look at like. Popovich with Team USA last summer. You know, he made sure that Derek White stayed on the team, even though that was debatable whether he was, he merited that. So Trey had in 16 minutes, 10 points and 10 assists, a double double. He looked pretty good. Threw a nice lob to go bare, had some nice plays. 
Luca in 18 minutes had eight points and four assists. But aside from the two back-to-back three-pointers that he made and then immediately got pulled and never got put back in the game, aside from that, he was non-existent because he just doesn't try in these games. I've seen it four times now. I saw it in the Rising Stars last year. I saw it in the Skills Challenge last year. I saw it in the Rising Stars this year, and then I saw it in the All-Star game this year. He just does not put any effort into these games. Well, I think he he acts like it's it's a like it's fun, right? Like it's yeah. It's he was not, having fun out there. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because you see him during the season, and he's like uber competitive. He like rips his jersey when he makes a he misses yeah, a free throw. Yeah. Like he gets upset, and like Boban has to cheer him up on the bench. But on this, he's eating popcorn on the bench while he's waiting to go into the game. <laughs> like yeah, and it's it, it has an interesting implication for the more casual NBA viewer because the ratings I think were 8 million viewers of this all-star game. Lucas never had that many viewers of any other game of his at any point. So this was his biggest and his first exposure to a wide fan base. And it was to put it generously, a subdued performance. Uh, Even when he would, you know, drive to the lane. I mean, he was moving in slow motion. Yeah. He wasn't trying to beat anybody. He wasn't trying to make too much popcorn. So, (laughs) He was hungry. He had a busy weekend. Something interesting to think about. Why is he that way? Why does he just not take anything where there's really no stakes involved? And there there are stakes involved from the perspective of like a player's brand or something like that. But there was no stakes involved in terms of getting closer to a championship. Right. In fact, maybe it was more beneficial to him from the way he saw it was to not show his competitive flair to these other guys. Yeah. He didn't want to show them how he plays. He didn't want to give them any advantage about the way he plays. So these are some things to think about, perhaps. I know we had kind of talked about that a little bit. Yeah, it's smart. So what are the implications for cards? Well, until this year, the All-Star game was not taken seriously as a performance evaluation of players because nobody put much effort into this game. But that might change going into the future if this Elam ending format continues to generate competition uh, in fact, I've heard a number of commentators now, as I've listened to some of the recaps about this game, mention that it sort of had a Game 7 type of intensity, which yeah. to me is a bit of a hyperbolic take, but I can see that it you, you might say it had a playoff intensity to it. Yeah, And it did something that happens in a lot of playoff games, which is the offensive system that teams run just collapses, and the players just go into a more primal version of playing. Well, I think also with this system you don't know how long you're going to be on the court so you have to pace yourself a little more than if you knew it was going to be 12 minute quarter yeah so i mean 24 points doesn't seem like a lot but it was actually 36 points that team lebron had to score to get to 157 to get to the 157 and scoring that could take 10 minutes or it could take 20 you don't know that's true so i would say Uh, To conclude this discussion with respect to how it pertains to cards, to the extent that we learned anything predictive about what will happen in the playoffs, it's extremely valuable Uh, because, you know, during the playoff, uh, during the playoffs, there's a lot more eyes on the game and everything that happens suddenly has way more people watching it and the potential hobby exposure is much bigger the potential number of people to see a player have a, a, a big game and then they go and become accustomed with that player's cards for the very first time happens during the playoffs. Yeah. 
and it only gets magnified as the focus narrows to fewer and fewer teams and fewer and fewer players. So that's how I would connect the All-Star Game performance to card values. Yeah, I I definitely agree. I think that, you know, in terms of their values and how the All-Star Game actually turned out, um, I think you'll see that the way that those players played is probably going to be how they play more in a, you know, playoff final game. And then you can kind of go from there on, well, if this person's going to be really looking good or not in that kind of a scenario. Good point. Okay. Next topic, eBay tip. Uh, High starting bid auctions just don't work. And what's a high starting bid auction? That's an auction where you go on eBay. We saw one just pop up tonight, the Luca Black Mosaic 101 BGS 9.5. What, what is it? It starts at $23,777 yeah, as so, a starting bid. So it's an auction that has right. a finite time. Four maybe days it's seven left days. at this point. Okay, it's a five-day auction. Yeah. But in order to even participate in this auction, you have to bid basically $24,000 on your first bid. That never works relative to the other selling options that are available. So there's basically four selling options. Buy it now, buy it now or best offer, auction with a 099 starting bid or an auction with some super high starting bid. And the method of an auction with a super high starting bid is the worst possible way to sell stuff on eBay. And I'm going to tell you why. But first, you don't have to take my word for this. There's empirical verification of this. So case study number one, this goes back to a post I'm on an Instagram from December 2018. This was before the House of Jordans when I was just doing, you know, written content. A Michael Jordan 1996-97 Skyblocks Z-Force Slam Cam BGS 8.5 was run at an auction. It had a starting bid of $500. The auction ended without receiving a single bid. So nobody even put a $500 bid on that card. The next day, the same card from the same seller, the same slab, same everything. It got relisted, but this time it had a starting bid of 99 cents. The auction ran and it sold for $624.99. It's crazy. Case study number two from March of 2018, again from my Instagram account, a Michael Jordan 96.97 Fleer Thrill Seekers BGS 8.5. An auction was run. Again, it had a ridiculously high starting bid of $1,400. The auction ended without receiving a bid, same as the last situation, and same as last time, the same exact card, same seller, same slab, same everything. It got relisted, but this time instead of an auction, it was a $2,300 bin slash or best offer. It sold for a $1,500 best offer, okay? So then we asked the question, why? Why? can't these guys this guy set in this last example fourteen hundred dollars is a starting bid nobody bid it but then when he put it up for a buy it now or best offer somebody came in and bought it for fifteen hundred dollars i got three theories for why theory number one it's psychological a high starting bid creates a perception that the seller is scared and desperate it creates the impression that they want to sell quickly that they just need to get this card out the door for some reason so they just run this auction but they're scared that the price is going to go low. So they set this floor on the price to make sure that they at least get X amount of dollars. And that makes the card feel not coveted, not desirable. Yeah, I I definitely could see how you would think that. And I think just in general, people are like, well, I don't know if I want to 
bid that much on something like if nobody else is going to bid it if i'm the only one bidding on it like that's not a actual auction that's just a buy it now essentially plus i think that the whole point of ebay is you're trying to get the deal so when an auction says you have to start at fourteen hundred dollars yeah you're like well that's not a deal i want to come in low with my first bid and see if I can walk away with a $1,400 card for $900. My second theory is there's the procedure that this requires is very disadvantageous. So when you have a high starting bid, that prevents anybody from coming in placing bids early on. So like when you bid on an item um, on eBay, you get a five-minute warning right. on any item. I will bid on items if my watch list is full or something. I'll right. bid on an yeah. item just yeah. so I get that five-minute notification. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's weird, but the way that eBay works is if the item is only on your watch list, but you haven't bid on it, you only get a 14 minute notification. And there is something to that. I don't have empirical research to back this up, but intuitively there's a much likelier chance that you're going to be around to watch an auction conclude if you get a five minute notice versus a 14 minute notice. Oh, hundred percent. Well, there's a reason I've done it myself, you know, I do it all the time. And there's a reason that your phone alarm is a snooze of nine minutes because five minutes is too short. And like, you're right there. If it's like five minutes, yeah. if, if you, you have a notification on your phone that in five minutes, something's going to happen. You're paying attention for those five minutes. 14 minutes is too long. Like you're already off doing something else. Yep. And then you forget about it and you come back. You're like, Oh, yeah. I didn't bid. Yeah. There was a, a study you done recently in academia that said that, uh, the average undergraduate student, can only pay attention to the same topic for seven minutes. Their attention span is seven minutes before they need to move on to a different topic. So this is double. 14 minutes is double than the average student's uh, attention span. I've literally missed out on cards I really, really wanted because I saw the 14-minute notification. (laughs) I said, I'm going to check back in 12 minutes, and I just messed up my timekeeping or something came up. And I missed my window. Or someone bothered you. (laughs) Or that. (laughs) My third theory, competition. Bidding is competitive. There's always a chance that guys who get to come in and start bidding early, they're going to place a big monster bid. They're going to try and flex, basically. I don't fully understand why people do this because, to me, the most intuitive bidding strategy is to wait and snipe an item at the end. But people will bid up an item early and put their maximum bid in even. They will put that in early to maybe scare off other bidders. Maybe the purpose of it is you know to see if they're even going to be in the ballpark of winning this item, but people do it. And then from the competitive perspective, there's also always a chance that you know guys are going to come in and compete at the very last second, and there will yeah. be this little mini bidding war that goes on the last 10 seconds. I think you have a lot more emotional attachment to the card when you've actually already bid it on it. So that kind of gives you more of that competitive thing too, where you're like, oh, I really want this card. So friendly advice to the eBay selling community uh, within the sports card context, don't set a high opening bid. It just doesn't work. Final topic. There was an article written by Alina Cohen called Why Flipping Art is controversial. This article I thought was well written and researched. Uh, just to summarize very briefly, the article is about how flipping modern art and fine art is actually detrimental to young artists. What they're saying here, what the author's saying is that you have these young artists 
who are aspiring, their artwork gets put on the market and let's say it sells for $50,000. Somebody buys that piece of artwork and then they turn around and they sell it for $250,000 right. right away, a flip, right. which is hobbyists. This is kind of familiar. We don't see right. margins like that, like the type of margins that they were talking about in some of this stuff where a guy's artwork went for 60000 and then a few, like it had a projected ending of 60000 and went for 600000 right. So. Another quote is, artists don't benefit from any of these uh, additional sales. So, like you stated, the young artist who sells their art in a gallery for $60,000 or $6,000, and then two years later, the purchaser sells it at auction for $67,000. None of that money goes back to the young artist who's trying to create new art, who has studio fees who has to pay the gallery for showings. Um, And there are a few jurisdictions, the article states, that have resale royalty laws, kind of like uh, the music business uh, is a parallel that was drawn in the article. But that's not common. So oftentimes you have these artists who are just SOL. When you see people flipping things, it creates the impression that they're not in the hobby for the long term. It creates the impression that they don't love the cards, that they just take a card. They just want to move it. It's just an asset to them. They don't love it. They don't appreciate it. They don't, you know, they're not in this hobby. They're not in this community for the, for the, you know, the sake of just loving the cards and wanting to have this PC that they take with them to their grave. But instead they're just there to exploit our love of cards and our passion for cards and our willingness to pay more than what the next person did. I think it's possible, too, that people that are flipping do love the hobby in the sense that they're flipping to, like, get something else. So, you know, if you're – I don't do it myself necessarily, but flipping, like, a card and, like, buying a card right away and then flipping it right away to get – you know, let's say you buy five different cards, you flip them right away, and then you you put it into something else that you want. That's a tremendous point. And this argument was made when – Panini announced that they were going to start doing reverse Dutch auctions to sell first off the line products, effectively taking away a lot of the profit margin that the people who would buy those products and then resell them, aka flip them, would earn. The argument was being made that Panini is taking money out of the pockets of flippers, but the flippers end up taking the money that was made from these resales and buying cards with it. So, in fact, you could almost construct an argument that goes to the effect of when you allow flipping to happen, it adds more money into the card ecosystem. And when you add more money into the card ecosystem, it fuels the growth of the hobby as a whole. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, and in terms of, you know, if you compare it to like shoes or something like that too, you know, there's flippers for shoes and like, it just creates a market to be in existence essentially, you know, like it's, it's like, uh, you know, there's no like stocks mechanism that's tracking the prices of all these cards. So like it's up to people to basically do that themselves. And so buying a card and then selling it for the, for the price that it actually should be sold at maybe too, you know, from that standpoint, you know, if you are getting that lower price. So the lessons of flipping, do they apply the, do the, the sentiments that the art community seems to feel towards flipping? Is it the same? I think they do. Um, the fact that the the whole point about the young artist, you can draw parallels to the young player. So if you have a young player that 
gets prices and cards are skyrocketing too quickly, you have this potential destruction of a fan base. You have people who get a little resentful of the popularity and the prices of a young player or a popular player. And then they don't want to be a fan of that person. They feel priced out. Yeah. And they resent it because who wouldn't? I also wanted to point out that one thing Ms. Cohen does not take into consideration is the perhaps new type of art collector. In her article, she said that some people said you couldn't resell an, a painting for five to 10 years. And I think that with the whole like college student only being able to pay attention for seven minutes, someone might not want a painting on their wall for 10 years. Right. And I think that might also be the same with collecting. Yeah. Potentially you want an awesome card, but then you want to put it back out in the market so someone else can enjoy it and you can get a bigger grail. Right. So I think that whole fake time limit on when it's okay to sell, resell a painting or resell a card uh, is just that it's just fake. It's arbitrary. It doesn't actually mean anything. And you have to take into consideration. And one thing she, I would have done if uh, I was writing this article would be to actually talk to some flippers as she calls them, talk to the people who are collecting the art and paying those big prices and then selling it for higher prices and why they're selling it. Is it just to make money or is it because they want something else on their wall? The five to 10 year ban on reselling is a contractual provision that gets put into acquisitions of art pieces which is very interesting because it's like a a very formalistic, rigid way of enforcing a norm, which is when you buy a piece of art, we expect you to keep it for at least five to 10 years. Right. right. But it's also noted in the article that lawyers it's a question of whether say it's they can't right. enforce this clause. Yeah. So then they just ban them. They don't, though. Well... She but said they, that they tried to. They don't ban them from auctions. They, they ban them from uh, buying from galleries. Right. 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 So. But then they say, they, she also goes on to say, if you're a high purchase, like if you're a VIP purchaser of that gallery and you flip, they're not going to do anything because you're buying so much of their stock that it's not worth it to them to ban you. Right. Well, that it, makes sense. Yeah. In relating it back to the hobby, there's a norm in the hobby for sure. That nobody wants to see a really rare, difficult to obtain card go to a flipper. Yeah, they don't mind so much if like a Luca Silver Prism PSA ten goes to a flipper, but when a really rare high end card goes to somebody who's just going to turn around and put it right on the market a few days later for a fifty percent markup of what they paid, especially if they like bought it on eBay or in a public transaction, people get repulsed by that. Yeah. It's well, a, it also has a negative market effect. Yeah, you just feel like you're like, well, I don't want to buy that. Like that's not. Yeah, and I it makes the card. In, you know? It makes the card feel more available than it should, especially if it's like a really rare, like low serial numbered card. It right. also taints it. Yeah, exactly. So like we in the hobby have norms against this too. It's more of like a cultural, like you know, subconscious norm too. You know. Yeah. Nobody. I mean, it, it, nobody likes to see it happen. Right. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting dynamic with the flippers. So that will conclude episode 17. Thank you for listening. House of Jordan's three podcasts have come out in the last two weeks, uh, since, uh, You're shout welcome, out to Martha listeners. came out <laughs> 13 days ago. Uh, so until next time.